This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Personally, it's hard for me to imagine this is a lab environment anyone would want to be in. And what I would say is it doesn't matter what grad schools want. What really matters is what you want. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we answer listener questions about the importance of lunch, blending art with science, and more. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 190. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, episode 190. I don't think I ever thought we'd make it to 200 episodes, but we are knocking on the door. <laughs> are you going to do this every episode between now and 200, Josh? Because we I got might. a ways to go. We're talking several months of, of bi-monthly. Is it, is it semi-monthly or bi-monthly? I can never remember. Uh, every two weeks, fortnightly. <laughs> there you go. Well, I look forward to having this conversation a few more times before we hit it. I, we don't have a plan for the 200, do we? Uh, not a thing. So if any listeners have ideas for something we should do for episode 200, we'd love to hear it. You know, Dan, do you remember, it feels like ages ago, but for episode 100, do you remember episode 100? I sure do. <laughs> it was the everybody knocked on the door dinner party. That was probably the most editing and production that I've ever put into an episode. <laughs> so if anyone wants to hear that, uh, go back into the archives and pull out episode 100 and we will keep ideas flowing for what we might have in store for episode 200. Uh, in the meantime, Dan, tonight we're celebrating with this beer. Uh, this is a little different for us. It is. And it was, the, I think this is the last of the podcast beers in the bottom of the fridge. So this is the cast iron oatmeal brown from Four Hands Brewing. And that is Four Hands Brewing in St. Louis, Missouri. I don't know why, probably habit, but I don't know why I don't get brown ales more often because I always have them. And I think like, you know, this is pretty decent. This is a solid beer that I could get behind. It's not super high gravity. This is a five and a half percent. I think sometimes you think about darker beers and you think about them being heavier as in higher alcohol content, higher sweetness, but that's not necessarily true, Dan. This is a, a 5.5% beer. I think it certainly has a lot of flavor, uh, but it goes down pretty easy. What do you think of it? I, I agree with you. I poured mine into a glass. Can you see it? Nice brown color. It is dark brown. It looks like Coca-Cola or Pepsi, but more opaque. Um, the thing that stood out to me, Josh, when I opened this can, and I don't know whether it's just because it was the last can sitting alone by itself in the in the crisper drawer, but when I opened it, it had almost no pop you know, you open a can of beer and you hear the sound, which I know you can. Yeah, excellent. Excellent work. It didn't do that. And I couldn't, I didn't know if that was just mine or did yours also, it's like a lack of carbonation or a very low amount of carbonation. No, that was not the case for me, Dan. I opened mine and I got that distinctive release of carbonation when I popped the top on the can. So, okay, so mine <laughs> really was just lonely in there. <laughs> maybe the seal was broken on yours. Is it flat? <laughs> Uh, no, but it's pretty close, which I thought it was interesting. So yours, yours may not be as good of an experience as, as the one I have here. Um, mine Still tasty. Okay. I'm not going to pour it out. Don't worry. 
I mean, just being honest, Dan, I did purchase these beers, I think it was back in June. So, June of 22, <laughs> that is. And hopefully they don't have a freshness by date. Well, I'm enjoying the stand, and this is uh, has oatmeal in it, so I am going to say uh, this would be a healthy breakfast as well. <laughs> you, you can say that. It doesn't make it true. <laughs> well, something that is true, Dan, we uh, are thankful for our sponsors. Why don't you tell the listeners what Promega has for us this week? Sure, Josh. Some of the first techniques you might learn in a molecular biology lab would be purifying and amplifying nucleic acids. And whether you're new to the lab or you might just need a refresher, you can nail down these basic skills and learn how to overcome whatever challenges come your way by visiting promega.com slash hello DNA. You'll find resources in the Student Resource Center that can help you with all sorts of molecular biology techniques. Also, Dan, we have a new Patreon patron this week. We wanted to give a special thank you to Chitron. Yep, and we've been chatting in the Slack channel, Josh. It's been uh, good conversations this week about project management software, about how to uh, keep up with all the journal reading that you need to do as a grad student. There's been some good conversations in there, so we'll be talking to Chitrin on that side. That's fantastic. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash hellophd. Okay, Dan, we are going to reach into the mailbag. It's been a little while, but we have some really interesting questions today that I'm looking forward to jumping into. So let's get to it. All right, Josh, digging into the mailbag, we have something a little bit unusual this time, which is a series of questions from one listener. Uh, We heard from Monica and... These questions were quite varied, and all of them were pretty interesting. And so we're going to devote the episode to these four or five questions that Monica asked. So she starts by saying she's an undergraduate sophomore interested in a career in neuroscience research. Uh, And she recently began listening to the podcast, and she says, I've probably listened to over 50 episodes in the past week. In the past week? (laughs) I know. It's really, it's a lot of listening. Hopefully at 3x. Uh, This has been such an incredible resource to demystify so many questions I had about science research. And you guys are just hilarious and so fun to listen to. Uh, And I assume she's talking about me and not you, Josh. Clearly, clearly. So so she goes on. Here's her first question. I was wondering what your perspectives are for grad school academia and disordered eating. For the past year, I've been working in a lab with grad student advisor and working there over the summer over 40 hours a week. However, in that entire time, I don't think I've ever seen my advisor eat a meal. And I found that a lot of the time when I asked to take meal breaks, it was seen with a sense of inferiority or, quote, weakness for taking time away from work. I definitely understand that food is not allowed inside a lot of lab settings for safety reasons, but it was a bit alarming to me to see how little people in this kind of research slip into some unsettling habits, like replacing meals with coffee or just skipping meals entirely. I feel like the grad student trope of just, they're just so busy, they don't have time to consider proper nutrition. But as someone who has struggled with disordered eating and eating disorders, this is something I can't compensate for, if that makes any sense. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, Dan, I think there, there's a lot to unpack with this question. Uh, one thing I'll say from our experience, I don't think we skipped lunch one time when we were in grad I school. I never missed a meal, Josh. I missed a lot of <laughs> things, but it was never a meal. <laughs> I'd say, Dan, you may have skipped doing research entirely quite a few days, but you did not skip lunch. <laughs> <laughs> true fact, true fact. Uh, you might have actually been avoiding c- certain things by going to lunch. But enough about me, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, you know, Monica, thank you for this question. And 
like I said, there's several things to cover here. So I want to break this into some different aspects and try to respond um, broadly at first to this question, but then specific to, to what you're asking for your situation. Um, first, the part about never seeing your your advisor, and I think you might mean your, your grad advisor, eat a meal. You know, I have, I've worked with people through the years, and, and actually there's somebody I work with really closely now who I never see actually eat a meal. Uh, but I do know for a fact through conversations um, and other, other things, getting to know this person, uh, that they do eat. They do eat lunch uh, every day at work. But I also know that, one, they have a very specific diet, so they bring their own food every day. And I've worked in environments, Dan, we were talking about this with our own experience, but sometimes people may go out to eat, whether on campus or off campus, sometimes people, and sometimes people with very specific diets, or maybe those who, for financial reasons or other reasons, choose to bring their own meals, may not want to participate in that. So it might be important to think about if they otherwise want to participate in eating with the lab, eating in front of people. Um, And if so, um, if that's true, how can they potentially be included? But sometimes people just want that lunchtime as time to themselves, like working in a lab environment, a typical lab environment, you're kind of around people all the time. Um, Oftentimes, especially if you're a student or a trainee in the lab, and well, actually, a lot of times only the PI may have their own private space where they can close the door. So right. um, I have known people, and like I said, one of my coworkers now I know likes to utilize that time just to get away a little bit and doesn't necessarily Absolutely. want to be around people when they eat. Actually, Dan, that's, I've been a little bit more like that sometimes lately. You know, a day or two a week I've found um, I am fortunate now. I have an office with a door, and if I'm not feeling in a social mood, I may go and get my lunch, close the door, and and watch YouTube. I mean, get work done. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. There are a lot of different reasons you may not see somebody eat. And I definitely have known people with different um, food sensitivities or they're on a specific controlled diet. And it can be really, I don't want to say annoying, but it can get very tiring having to explain to other people why you don't want to go to the burger joint or you don't want to uh, walk across the street to get a Chick-fil-A sandwich. And so, you probably develop some avoidant behavior in that case and, and try to stay away from people. We don't know if that's the case in, in Monica's lab. And so I do want to get to the next piece. But, you know, the longer you hang out, Monica, you may discover there people are eating uh, and that it's just that they have these other reasons that they don't want to do it in a public fashion. But let's, but let's talk about what happens if, and I, and I think the real core of Monica's question is really about how Monica is feeling about eating, uh, about how it's, not okay to take the time out of lab. That's right. And I don't, and that is certainly valid. The way that you're experiencing this, I mean, the way you are being made to feel about your own desire to stay healthy, take care of yourself physically, eat lunch. I mean, I'm assuming you mentioned working lab 40 hours a week. So I'm imagining you would want to eat lunch every day, which is a totally reasonable thing that anyone would want to do. So I want to aspect that, I want to address that aspect of the question where she feels like she's getting explicit pushback or at least some some skepticism about taking breaks to eat. You know, in my career I've worked in several labs and I don't think I've ever felt bad about been been made to feel bad for stopping to eat lunch. We mentioned and sometimes it was actually a high point of the day. But I think the situation described here 
could rise to the level of a runaway scenario. Um, you know, there are lots of different labs, and it sounds like you have a lot to offer uh, to any lab you're working in. So there's no need to stay in this one if you feel like you're in an environment where you're not encouraged to be healthy and take care of yourself in the way you feel like you need to take care of yourself. You know, we talk a lot on the show about choosing the right lab environment. And you should certainly strive to choose one that provides climate where you can be mentally well, but certainly physically well also. And, you know, Dan, I talk to a lot of students who are in lab situations that are either toxic at one end of the spectrum, or at the very least, are environments where they don't feel like they can be their their full healthy selves. And and there's something about, you know, lab, or I guess I should say lab is not some magical place where you're just stuck. I mean, it's really just like a job that you might have that's toxic. So if you were in a job that was not allowing you to be healthy or not allowing you to, or was creating an environment where you could not exist in a healthy way, you would probably leave that job. And so I think labs are like that too. And if you're in a big university, then there are literally a hundred other labs, you know, take your talents, take your time elsewhere. And sometimes making that change may be the difference between you getting the mentorship and the support you need to continue to grow as a scientist and have a successful career or deciding to step away from science entirely. So, you know, some of that advice is not specific to how you're being made to feel about stopping to eat lunch. But I think in general, if there are practices or a culture in that lab that doesn't jive with what you need to be your best and healthy self, there's nothing wrong with moving along and finding a different lab, especially as an undergraduate. Yeah, I think what I hear you saying, Josh, is that you have worked in several labs, plenty of labs. I've worked in several labs and we ate lunch and it was not looked down upon and and people ate in different ways. Some people would eat at the desk. Some people would go to a restaurant. There are different ways of eating, but certainly there are labs out there where eating can be ordered and you can take care of your body. And I think what I hear you saying, Josh, is if this continues to present as a problem, if people are making you feel as if you have to become a disordered eater or to push yourself into a place where you know it's dangerous for you, then there's lots of opportunities to get out. And I think, you know, what would come along with this, some other indicators maybe that there, there's something going on in the lab that you don't want to be a part of is not just the lunch. If people are working extreme hours, so expecting you to be there more than your 40 hours a week as an undergrad. I mean, that's a lot for an undergrad for personally, it sounds like. Um, if the people are coming in on weekends, if nobody ever takes a vacation, I think these are all indicators that there is a culture of let's be martyrs. Let's work ourselves past our limits. And that may not be a good place for you to be. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, what can happen sometimes is maybe this is the first lab, you know, Monica mentioned being a, a sophomore in undergrad. Maybe this is the first real experience Monica's had working in a lab. And so what can happen sometimes is you don't have a reference point. And so you can be in an environment True. and you can think like, okay, well, I mean, I guess this is just how the culture of research is. And if I want to do this, I guess I have to replace lunch with coffee so I can get more experiments done. And what you might find is, no, no, that is not how it's the wrong lesson to learn. That's how this lab operates. And maybe this is totally not the lab environment that you need to be in. Um, Personally, it's hard for me to imagine this is a lab environment anyone would want to be in, but 
that could just be my point of view. All right, Joshua, let's move on to question number two. Monica asks, what are your thoughts about the big research scholarships during undergrad like Goldwater or postgrad like Rhodes, Marshall, Mitchell, etc.? Are they necessary for getting into grad school? How well would they distinguish an applicant? Well, I can say cert- with certainty that they are not necessary to get into grad school. Um, as I've talked because about Because we show, didn't have them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We didn't have them. Um, if, if Monica has, has truly listened to 50 episodes in the last week, she probably went far enough in the catalog back to uh, when I was working in a leadership position doing graduate admissions. And I can tell you that the vast majority of people who are getting into to PhD programs in the sciences do not have these impressive sounding um, undergraduate fellowships. However, I mean, can it help? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think getting a prestigious fellowship as an undergrad can give you a little bit of a boost. Unless, I guess one caveat I might give is if if towards the end of your undergraduate, you get a fellowship that comes with some sort of funding that carries into graduate school, uh, that can certainly make a decent difference. Otherwise, you still need to be a generally competitive candidate. You need to have the research experience, the scientific coursework, all of those things. But if on top of that, you also are bringing in some sort of funding on your own, that is definitely a good thing, though, as I said, it's not required. Um, often we see this with a really popular one for science PhDs, and that is the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship, NSF-GRFP, uh, that can provide funding for uh, two or three years in graduate school. Um, certainly, that does give a boost if you're coming in with that funding, but certainly not required in the vast majority of PhD students coming in do not have those types of scholarships. And I will go ahead and plug, I don't know which end of the catalog Monica started listening from. Uh, if, you, if you went back all the way to the beginning, then you're probably still doing an etymology puzzle, Monica. And you missed out on episode 181, where I interviewed Elizabeth Somson, uh, who got a Fulbright scholarship and studied in Turkey. And she actually wrote a guide to post-bac programs, post-baccalaureate programs, including the Fulbright scholarship that she got and, and some of the others. So uh, go check out episode 181. And she actually offered to chat with other people who had questions. You can find her on Twitter at Liz Sompson, L-I-Z-S-O-M-S-E-N. All right, Josh, ready for the next one? I'm ready. I'm hoping to do a double major in film media, film slash media, along with a STEM major, as I really love art and science, and I want to find a way to do both. I've recently been accepted into a study abroad program where I'll be taking classes at a nationally ranked film school and doing an entire semester without any science. Would that be a turnoff for graduate school applications? Do graduate schools want people who are strictly research focused or are they welcoming of people with more creative slash non-scientific interests? Not of course that science and creativity are dichotomous, but that's a whole other conversation. What do you think, Josh? Are you allowed to take a semester off doing film studies and still get into grad school? Um, Certainly not. Okay, good show. We'll talk to you next week. Monica said she loved that sense of humor we had, so I thought I would <laughs> sprinkle that in. We may we may yet change her mind. No, of course you can, you can mix the two. And and really the main thing I wanted to say in response to this question is Monica asked what do graduate schools want? And what I would say is it doesn't matter what grad schools want. What really matters is what you want for your life and your career. You say that Monica says she loves art and science and wants to find a way to do both. We'll certainly pursue that. I know you want some more tangible advice probably. So 
I will say yes, your unique interests and experiences, if you do this cool study abroad film program, definitely can help you get into a science PhD program. I know of a student that I used to work with who was really into art and animation, and during her PhD, she found ways to do that and even found an internship to do that part-time during her PhD. One thing that I think was important for her was she found a lab where the PI was also really into creative ways to visually display and share research from their lab. So that was a real natural fit. And those specific interests that she had, not just doing science, but bringing in um, skills and interest in art and animation, really connected with what that PI wanted to do in his lab. So I know that takes a little bit more work, but I think you know, scientists are not a monolith. PIs are not a monolith. There are people that have lots of different types of interests. Um, and you might just find someone who was looking for a student just like you who had that specific um, mix of, of skills and interests. So I say all that to recommend that when the time comes for you to look into graduate school, assuming you do this film and media fellowship and you're still interested in pursuing science, maybe a science graduate program, I think it's really important to be upfront and open about those interests that you have because it would be better to not get into a program that isn't going to be okay with you pursuing both of those goals, then it would be to keep your goals quiet, thinking the grad school is not going to want to, it's not going to be interested in you if you're interested in things other than science. Because what you don't want to happen is get into a program like that and then say, hey, everybody, actually, I'm interested in pursuing uh, these these creative um, outlets along with my science. And they say, well, no, we have no interest in you doing that. That's not a good fit for you. So I think it's important to be really upfront and really open about uh, what your specific interests are and look for environments that are going to be open um, or even excited about having you explore them there. Yeah. And I would actually push a little harder on that um, just for Monica to think about why do you want a PhD? Traditionally, and, and I speak of this as a person who should have asked this question of myself before I went and got a PhD. Having that degree allows you to go teach at a university, and people are leveraging PhDs to do a bunch of other things, science communication, program administration, non-government organizations. They're using them to do other things. But if you don't love research, getting through to that degree is going to be very painful. And so if you say to me, oh, I really want to do science communication uh, and science filmmaking, I say, great. Uh, what does a PhD get you in that process that you can't get some other way? And so I'd be just a little bit concerned about locking you into a five or six or seven year program to learn research when you could learn research in many different ways or to learn a specific subject. So anyway, that's my caution. Um, make sure that you really do love uh, doing research and that the art is an expression of that and that you can combine the two, certainly. But don't go into it thinking, I, if I just get this degree, I'm going to be a great filmmaker because I'll have something people don't have because it'll be very tough to get that degree if you don't love it. Yeah, that's a good point, Dan. So I think when the time comes, first, I think you're going to learn a lot about your interests. Your interests are still are still being formed and are expanding. And I think it's, I mean, and it sounds like you have this amazing experience to go to this really great film school abroad and, and learn some more about that aspect of your interests. And who knows where that's going to lead? Who knows the connections you're going to make there? Um, but it sounds like you also have a lot of really intensive research experience and you're, for the most part, enjoying that too. 
but I think like like Dan, you were saying, when the time comes that you're ready to make a transition after undergraduate, really think about is a PhD in science the thing I need to truly move into the type of career I want? You know, I think if you have like a 10% interest in science and a 90% interest in film and media, going to a science PhD program is probably going to run you down. But if you think, you know what, I still, I love research. I love the research process. I want to continue to develop as a scientific thinker, but also I would like some opportunities to express my interest in science in film or in media, then certainly put that out there. Go look for opportunities where you can do both. Um, I will say, I mentioned that graduate programs, I think, will be interested in your unique um, interests and skill sets. But at the end of the day, they are going to want you to also seem like you're really interested in science and doing research, because that's going to be paramount and first priority for research PhD programs. So you just want to make sure your mind is is there too at that time. Yeah. And I, I love the combination of people who are artists and scientists. I think the blending of what we consider two different worlds is where real innovation comes from. It's somebody who, with a visual mind who looks at a problem in a different way than somebody with maybe a, a pattern-based or analytical mind. And so I am totally in favor of this combination, and I don't want to discourage you from doing it. Just make sure that you know uh, what you're walking into. I think listening to this podcast will give you a good sense of some of the hurdles ahead, and you're going to be better prepared than almost anybody else who goes in. So best of luck on making that decision. You know, Dan, this reminds me of a quote that we shared way back on episode 86. Oh, episode 86. I remember that quote. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, that was from a, a gentleman, a scientist named Peter Medawar. And it said, he says, there's no such thing as a scientific mind. Scientists are people of very dissimilar temperaments doing different things in very different ways. Among scientists are collectors, classifiers, and compulsive tidiers up. Many are detectives by temperament. Many are explorers. Some are artists. Others artisans. There are poet scientists, philosopher scientists, and even a few mystics. What sort of mind or temperament can all these people be supposed to have in common? Obligative scientists must be very rare, and most people who are in fact scientists could have easily been something else instead. Perfect. You, you well, Peter Medawar said it perfectly, <laughs> but you remembered it, Josh. I did. I always loved that quote. And Monica, maybe you can you can tuck that away and keep that with you as well. All right. Monica did have one more question, and I do want to get to this one because it's a super interesting question that I'm pretty sure we have not discussed on the show. Okay, here goes. Do you have any recommendations for shows or movies about research, grad school, or academia? All I know is Big Bang Theory for TV shows, which I strongly find to be an inaccurate representation of science and scientists. My dream is to develop a TV show about neuroscientists, and specifically neurograd students, because from my observations through being in labs, grad school is such a fascinating experience that more people should know about it. If you were to watch something like this, what would you think would be important for audiences to see? That is an amazing, <laughs> amazing transition. So I am not a Big Bang Theory watcher. Have you watched it, Josh? Um, I, I did watch it back in the day. Uh, actually, Dan, talking about Big Bang Theory and this question made me think we could pivot and turn this show into a TV and movie recommendation podcast. Wouldn't be good, Josh. I don't watch enough of those things. <laughs> I could just tell you what I'm watching and try to explain it, and then you could respond to it. That might be entertaining. And I would I would make fun of it for 30 minutes. Perfect. 
I have, Dan, been watching some shows that former Big Bang cast members now star in. Fascinating. Uh, are you going to answer Monica's question? Well, one, okay, I won't get into to those shows that I've been watching, which are uh, Poker Face and... Oh, I watched uh, Poker Face. We can talk about that later. I watched it. And The Flight Attendant. Did you know Poker Face had a former Big Bang Theory cast member? Who is it? Uh, Simon Helberg, who played Howard. He plays the uh, the FBI agent on Poker Face. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Great. Um, all right, Dan. I love this question, Monica, and I totally agree that film and TV portrayals of scientists are very far from reality. I can't uh, think of very many except like CSI. Oh, no, Dan. That's because you don't watch enough movies. Okay. So I've taken offense at this several times, Dan, uh, because, the f- because in movies, scientists almost always fall into one of two categories there's either the mad scientist who has a secret plan to take over the world uh, sort of like the lex luther thing it's kind of, that was kind of my jam as a scientist go ahead <laughs> or uh, no dan actually i think this might have been you you might have been the second bucket uh, or you have the scientist who is trying to convince people that the world is imminently going to end and no one will listen oh that's also me but it, but I was the one ending it too, so it's kind of a it's kind of a thing. <laughs> That's true. It's kind of confusing. Come on, guys, believe out. me, I can do this. <laughs> well, uh, I spent a lot of time in in previous work, Dan. You know this, doing science outreach uh, to kids, and what we did was we worked with them, or we tried to at least, to show them and expose them to what being a scientist was really like. And through that, we had some programs where we would bring high school kids onto campus and they would hang out with grad students and postdocs for an afternoon, and then I'd have them report back to the group about what they learned. And Dan, one of the questions I would always ask is, was there anything you saw today in the lab that surprised you? And I'll never forget this. They would often say things like, I was surprised that people were laughing or people were actually listening to music. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were surprised that science and scientists were doing human things. <laughs> that is surprising. I agree with them. On one hand, you could say really validated some of this need for science outreach to uh, lift the veil back and show kids that being scientists is really, scientists are just people. But I think that also reinforces some of these stereotypes that we were talking about where literally kids were surprised that grad students and scientists were doing normal human things like listening to music or laughing. Did you know, I'm from, from stock photography, every scientist is an attractive person in a lab coat and thick glasses holding up a test tube of blue liquid and staring at it intently. That must be what scientists do. Yeah, and clearly that's not true because I never wore a lab coat. Exactly, but you <laughs> did stare at blue liquid all the time. And stunningly handsome. <laughs> that's right yeah i didn't i forgot to, i didn't mean to leave that out sorry john <laughs> uh, you know monica i do think it would be amazing to have a tv show about science grad students when i was in grad school uh, we, we used to stand around and we would talk about what a tv show like this might look like um, in fact back then and this is really going to date us quite a bit dan uh, but the office had just come out like we were watching it for the first time back then 
And so we would talk about if there was a way we could make a show in the style of The Office, but the character it would take place in a lab at a university, and there would be like the quirky grad student, and then there would be the surly postdoc, and and maybe the aloof PI, and uh, the department chair. Who you know we 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 created this whole cast of characters. Um, now there's shows like Abbott Elementary, which is in a very similar style about an elementary school. But I think academia and specifically science grad school is odd and unique and interesting enough that it would lend itself well uh, to a show like that and would be hilarious. So Monica, with your knowledge of science and your interest in film and media, I hope you make this happen. And if you need a consultant, let me know. You are so right. I can think of probably 10 what I would consider characters. They're real human beings, but people that I knew from different labs who were just like, if you wrote this character in a show, people wouldn't believe it. It, And I I hesitate to give examples because Josh, you're going to know who I'm talking about. And maybe people listening (laughs) will know who I'm talking about. So I'm like, I'm going to stop myself, but everybody knows this person with, with an unusual quirk, uh, and they just cause usually anxiety in the lab, but that anxiety could read as pretty funny if you were not part of it. Dan, I could see you being a character again as a throwback to earlier earlier in this episode. Totally, you could be the grad student who was always avoiding going to their own lab. So maybe like you'd always be hanging around in my lab. Oh, I love it! I love it. Yeah, <laughs> just finding reasons else. not to be there. Yeah, I totally love it. Don't you have a project? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm going to get to that later tonight. You know, I just like to stay late. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I feel like it would write itself, Josh. Then there's so many hilarious situations. You know, at some point, somebody's going to get locked in the, the walk-in freezer. Like, that's going to be an episode. Uh, there's going to be stuff breaking. It's going to be really great. You know, we also, when we were talking about this, this show we were going to make, we would often talk about what actors would portray us if we were characters in the show. And I was told that the most likely actor uh, would be a young Dick Van Dyke for me. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't sure if that was a compliment or not. (laughs) I I assume nobody listening will get that reference because I think Dick Van Dyke hasn't been relevant for 40 years. But to be fair, he wasn't relevant when I was in. No, I know. I know. Uh, I love it. Okay, people, go look up Dick Van Dyke. You'll, like, you'll like, appreciate the Like joke. Dick Van Dyke from, we'll say, the original Mary, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, Monica, thank you so much for these excellent questions. I hope we uh, provided some, some help or at least some entertainment. And also, we hope other folks out there might have, have gotten something out of these, these questions and our answers as well, uh, which is a good reminder. We do love responding and discussing listener questions so if you have a question or topic idea you can send it to us simply email podcast at hellophd.com or you can send us a tweet at hellophd if you like the show you can leave us a review on apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform we love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show if you'd like to support us you can become a patron simply go to our website hellophd.com click the become a patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd we would appreciate the beer money and we are fresh out of beer dan so uh, we need to restock i think we can do that josh Uh, you'll be in town at some point and you and i can go to the beer store and and just tear it all down (laughs) that's right and if you have suggestions for uh new drinks we should try on the show 
Oh, we did have some beer suggestions. We did get some beer suggestions from listeners, so we'll have to look for those. I'll, I'll compile a list. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Monica, thank you. Everyone listening, thank you. Dan, thank you. And we'll be back at you next time. See you then. Bye.